think it was my father uh, who originally got me interested in trees. Uh, that's uh, me, aged about six or seven, at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew, uh, with my dad, who you can see was a uh, new immigrant because um, he's wearing a suit on a Saturday afternoon to go to the park. Um, and one of the ways that uh, he and my mother it interested myself and my brother in uh, in plants was basically by feeding us bits of them. And uh, you might recognize these. Uh, the one on the left is Diffenbachia, which comes with a public health warning as a, as a pot plant. Don't feed it to your children, your, your pets or anyone else. Um, and I remember him tearing off a little piece of this plant and giving it to me to try. And uh, he said, I'm going to tell you an incredibly important story and you're never ever going to forget it. And I remember as I put it in my mouth, there was this terrible sort of, uh, I mean, he, he had warned me that it would be painful and it was, it was like needles. Um, and he said, this plant is something that uh, slave owners used to uh, give slaves, enslaved people in the deep south of the United States um, uh, if they got out of line and this would stop them from speaking for a while. Um, it's called Diffenbachia dumb canes in the United States and uh, a story that I'll never forget but it also made me think um, about the science of the plant that here was a plant that had developed a defense mechanism that could shoot poison through the mucous membranes of, uh, uh, of my mouth as my dad explained it um, uh, using these little sort of crystals, uh, uh, sharp crystals inside the, uh, the cells to accelerate the poison into the, uh, into the mouth. Um, and, and from then on, I remember every plant seemed to have a, a story around it. The one on the right, of course, is an opium poppy. Um, and the effect on my tongue when I uh, tried that, I remember quite vividly, it just numbed it ever so slightly, it was hardly any effect on, at all. But the effect on my school teacher when I told her, uh, was absolutely extraordinary and I remember the uh, social worker coming around to the house and uh, my mother in a fantastic piece of rhetoric uh, saying uh, opium I mean what could be the problem with that um, very strange not having any reaction here but anyway I, I got interested in the in trees as a documentary filmmaker uh, in the BBC and then uh, later on with the uh, Royal Botanic Gardens Kew um, on various expeditions and one of the things that completely uh, sort of captivated me was just the incredible diversity. Um, you know, these wax palms in Colombia, the, um, the, the, um, uh, the trees of uh, the quiver trees of Namibia, the banyans and so on, just incredible diversity. And I started looking at these trees. There's, there's the dragon, um, uh, dragon tree from Socotra and the baobabs of Madagascar. Uh, I started looking at these thinking, um, what is it, if you look to the world from a tree's point of view, what is it that trees need? And of course the first thing they need is water. And uh, here's an amazing thing, uh, right, that if you look at the very, very tallest trees in the world, and th this one is um, a coastal redwood, and that's a person at the bottom, um, and you look at the other very, very, very tall trees in the world, and you look at the tallest examples of those very, very tall trees, either living or in the fossil record, the incredible thing is that the, they're all the same height. The very, very tallest of the tallest of the tallest that are now or have ever been are all about 120 meters and that's it. And the reason is that that's the level to which a tree can pump up water any further than that. And uh, well, here's what happens. The, um, uh, the, the way that it pumps water up is that uh, you get some evaporation off the top of the leaves uh, at the top of the tree and that creates a little vacuum 
and draws water up all the way up a column up the tree. And uh, if the uh, uh, tree tries to uh, pull water too far up a column, the column breaks. And so anywhere in the universe uh, that has the same gravity as we do, the trees will only be ever 120 meters tall. And it's all because of water. And uh, uh, the reason is that uh, the hydrogen-oxygen bonds in water will just sort of come apart if you try and um, pull it any further, which I think is wonderful. Um, so here's a question. A little uh, seed weighs next to nothing. A tree weighs a lot. A bad charcoal, obviously came from the tree, weighs a lot as well. So where did all the stuff come from? Now I ask this question uh, of uh, students every year at Bristol, and about 85% of those people who all have science degrees, by the way, they all say the same thing, which is the stuff comes out of the ground. Now I'm sitting here in Kentish Town. I don't know how it is where you are, but I don't see trucks driving around at night, filling in all the earth that the trees have dragged out of the ground. And yet, uh, most people believe that the stuff comes out of the ground. And I can tell you that photosynthesis is the magic of taking water, which comes from the roots, um, and carbon dioxide from the air through the leaves, doing this sort of magic with it and turning it into stuff that you can kick. And that is photosynthesis. And that's where a tree's food comes from. The main amount of food comes from not the soil, but from the air. So we've talked about water, we've talked about food. Trees need to defend themselves. And you can see that uh, there are lots of different ways that they do that. The fantastic pachypodium with its incredible spines from Madagascar. Oak trees just uh, around the corner here in Hampstead Heath. Um, they defend themselves with tannins, which uh, screw up herbivores digestion um, but they also um, send signals to each other uh, both through the air and through uh, fungal networks underground saying I'm under attack I'm under attack and those uh, signals uh, are picked up by other trees elsewhere um, eavesdropped if you like um, that, and those trees start making defense chemicals um, you have cherry laurel here which uh, when something bites on it uh, a two-part poison creates cyanide. You have the mansion eel, which is just unspeakably poisonous in every aspect. Caffeine, which is a, uh, a, a wonderful poison, which uh, um, we take just small amounts of every day, but is, is there to ward off insects. And this one I particularly like. You might think that this is tap exuding from a, a leaf that's been eaten by a caterpillar. But it's not just any old sap, it's actually uh, full of substances that don't, don't kill the caterpillar. No, 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 they kill the thing that comes and eats the caterpillar. Again, how cool is that? Uh, this is a, uh, a picture from the, um, uh, the, the book uh, Around the World and 80 Trees done by Lucille Clark. And uh, you know, the, the book is basically a series of, of stories about individual trees of sort of science and culture interwoven. These are the cowrie trees of New Zealand. One of the ways that they uh, have defended themselves is to uh, create a, a resin uh, which engulfs or poisons insects and other things that try to eat through the bark. And that um, resin has accreted over thousands and thousands of years and lies just beneath the, the ground. In the 19th century, while the uh, Americans were having a gold rush, New Zealand had a resin rush. 10,000 people um, 
converged on New Zealand from all over the world with uh, sort of twangy sticks that they put into the uh, soil and, and listened to the tone uh, so they could there was a, a, a big lump of resin. Uh, they dig up these pieces of resin that were uh, maybe uh, 30 kilograms each um, and uh, they all got shipped back to Europe where they were made into varnish for outdoor use for, for uh, sheds and trains and boats and things. And that um, uh, whole industry uh, was the beginning of New Zealand's kind of modernization that uh, ironically they used it to uh, sort of clear the forest, uh, the tax money on, on all this. Uh, they, uh, they used to clear the forest and uh, chop down trees <laughs> um, and actually build the infrastructure of modern New Zealand, uh, all on the basis of uh, the way that the tree defends itself. So having defended itself, uh, trees need to make baby trees. And the way they do that is by um, a sort of somehow transferring their sex cells uh, to the right parts of another tree. And uh, one way that plants do this is through pollen. Um, and uh, if, if you have hay fever, the kinds of things that you'll be um, allergic to are the kinds of pollen that are thrown to the wind, hoping that uh, they'll get to where they're meant to go. Uh, so birch pollen and this is alder and so on. Um, uh, the other way of doing it is by having flowers where you don't have to make so much pollen, uh, but you depend on an insect, or in this case, with red flowers, um, a, a bird to, uh, uh, to come and uh, drink the nectar and in return um, uh, do the pollination by you know, getting covered in pollen and taking the pollen to somewhere else. Now, um, that's... Uh, the, uh, more efficient for the plant but of course they have to make all this nectar and bright flowers which is is costly in terms of resources. Um, some plants, uh, these big and blousy uh, flowers uh, of the durian, um, they, these trees are not using birds, they're not using insects or bees, um, they're using something else and these the clue is that these flowers taste of sour milk, um, they come out at night uh, and of course uh, you can probably just see here uh, a bat getting covered in, in pollen. And these bats will fly 20 kilometers uh, for a good drink of uh, a very, very sweet, sweet pollen and take those sex cells off to another tree. Um, but once you've, once you've uh, uh, fertilized your, uh, your, your ovary, uh, of course you end up with a seed, um, uh, which is the, the sort of beginning of the next generation. Uh, and that seed is no good if it's going to compete with the mother tree. Uh, it has to be taken somewhere else, uh, so it's not competing. Uh, these ones on the screen at the moment, they're all um, evolved to be um, spread by, uh, by birds that come and eat them and then poop them out and, uh, uh, and they'll, um, that, that gets them fertilized and they'll, uh, they'll grow somewhere else. Uh, you may have wondered why so many fruits are laxative, uh, and that's because uh, you know, the last thing you want if you're uh, a seed inside a fruit is that uh, you get uh, attacked for too long by all those digestive juices, which are really sort of powerful things. So um, what the uh, plant has done is incorporate those seeds uh, into something delicious and juicy and sweet that uh, mammals want to come and eat, um, but also a nice dose of laxative so that they don't stay in there for too long and they get planted again with a nice little dollop of fertilizer. Uh, the coconut uh, is distributed by water, um, floats off uh, on the ocean currents. 
interestingly, if you look at the, uh, the genetic makeup of coconuts, um, there's a similarity with the way that uh, the, you can see by the roots that they followed uh, similar, um, is similar to the genetic makeup of people. And you can see that they have followed some of the same ocean routes. Um, in the, um, uh, something that looks uh, ostensibly rather similar and people think, people used to think that it was uh, um, uh, distributed and uh, dispersed by water is the Coco de Mer, uh, which obviously I've put up there so we get a cheap laugh. Uh, but the, the Coco de Mer um, is, it, this thing weighs 30 kilograms, uh, you know, the size of a suitcase. Uh, do not camp under one of these in the Seychelles. Uh, you think to yourself, how on earth can something like that, uh, which for some reason I can't think of why used to be regarded as an aphrodisiac, and um, how could something like that uh, not compete with the mother tree? And what it does is that it lands at the bottom and then puts out a sort of umbilical cord uh, for about uh, 12 meters um, and grows over there uh, using the nutrients from, the, uh, uh, from this enormous seed uh, so that it doesn't compete. It's fantastic. Here's the um, uh, Ravenala, the, um, uh, you know, the, the, this incredible uh, tree which looks like a fan. It's the, uh, the um, traveler's palm from Madagascar. And this, um, this tree, uh, it's called the traveler's palm, A, because you can sort of stick a, a straw in the bottom and drink some water out of it. I can tell you it's full of wriggly things and not very nice, <laughs> but I suppose if you're dying of thirst. And secondly, that it's meant to you know, all point in the same direction so you can use it as a compass. Thank you. Uh, one minute, I think. Um, so uh, the, um, uh, in fact, they all point in different directions, and it's a Madagascan joke. Uh, but the uh, this tree has blue seeds, bright blue seeds, and the only way that um, it can be dispersed is by this animal that recognises blue uh, and uh, not um, other colours very well, and that's the uh, permanently startled-looking rough lemur. And the point about this is that if anything happens to that rough lemur, that tree will become extinct. The rough lemur can actually uh, sort of survive on other things. He's okay, but uh, the tree will become extinct. And this is the point about climate change, is that when um, it's not just about things getting too hot or too cold, uh, but actually um, the, the, the system becomes out of kilter, the timing changes. So when something is depending on another organism for dispersing its seeds or doing pollination, that organism might not be there. And then those trees and those plants become functionally extinct. I'm going to finish um, by just uh, a, a short um, quote from the, um, uh, from the book. Um, hey, James did product placement, I can as well. Um, the rain, uh, one of my earliest memories is of a spectacular cedar of Lebanon near our home. One winter morning we found it dead, its trunk and limbs strewn haphazardly and being sawn up. It had been struck by lightning. That was the first time I saw my father cry. I thought about the huge, heavy, beautiful thing that was hundreds of years old and that I'd thought invincible and wasn't. And my father, who I had thought would always be in benign control of everything, and wasn't. I recall my mother saying that there had been a whole world in that tree, and I remember puzzling over that. My mother was right, there was a whole world in that tree, and so there is in every tree. They warrant our appreciation, and many of them need our protection. I am um, a girl, uh, a nine-year-old, 
uh, asked me uh, a, a question. I know we can't have questions at the moment, but she asked me this wonderful question, which was, if you were a tree, what tree would you be? And I would be this, this tree, the quiver tree of Namibia, not because it's so resilient and grows in the desert and all of that thing. That's true, but it's uh, and wonderful, but it's not that reason. Um, the two reasons. One is uh, that it's um, the national tree of Namibia, and when anyone sees it uh, in Namibia, they smile. Uh, it's like driving a Morris Minor. People just smile at you. Um, and the second reason, it's covered in this sort of white uh, uh, powder that means that people come along and want to stroke it. And so the idea of being a tree that people want to both stroke and smile at, especially at the moment. Uh, that's the tree I'd like to be. Thank you. <laughs>